This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, it's Mike. Sometimes you hear podcasters say, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Does it? I think it might. Why not try it? Please follow us and do recommend the show to others. And if you can, leave a review in your own mind, in your own hearts, or especially on one of those big websites that keeps the reviews and shows them to the rest of the public. Hi, it's Saturday. It's Mike. It's the Saturday show. And each Saturday, I give you one from the vaults and one from uh, the recent week to highlight, to once again discuss a segment that I've done. And the one from this week was in the new New Yorker, the new New Yorker by Katherine Schultz, titled Family Values, A Mother's Fight for the Rights of Queer People. I complimented the story. It was a great story, an otherwise excellent story. And how could she not, I say otherwise excellent, it was just a down-the-line excellent story by an excellent writer. How could she not include the name of her main character or the name of the son of the main character, the son who the main character was fighting for? She had to include that. There is nothing wrong with that, but man, did I let it get to me. And what I like to do since I have this show is I let it get to you via... A spiel. I think actually that was an opening of the show, but I talked about different names, names that pull me out of dramatic experiences, names like in this case, well, you'll hear, but some of the other names I referenced where I think Seymour and Sheldon and uh, Larry. Now, Larry's a lot cooler, a lot more cutting edge than some of the other names that I mentioned. So I wanted to go and excavate the vaults, look through all the vaults. We don't just have one vault. We have a vault within a vault. And somewhere deep down in all of our vaults is the Larry vault. And that's where I found a 2019 interview that I did with a guy named Larry Lewis, the director for the Center for Autonomy and Artificial Intelligence at the Center for Naval Analysis. So a center within a center at a vault within a vault, but this Larry was decentered. Larry Lewis is or was basically the guy who was tasked with counting civilian casualties. Just a really interesting interview about a position you don't think about until you do, as you're thinking about Larry's and Morty's, as we experience the week that was and an interview from years back. I hope you enjoy. I read a story in The New Yorker, an excellent story by Katherine Schultz, who is becoming one of my favorite writers, one of those for whom you see the byline. You don't skip the story. So the story was about a mother who became a leader for gay liberation because her son was gay. And this was in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And the son handled a beating and engaged in activism. And the mother stood by him and supported him every step of the way. 
And the problem with the story, actually, no, no, let me, let me change that. There was no problem with the story. There was no problem with the history. The problem was with me because the name of the main character's son was, well, let's uh, hear from the audio version of the New Yorker story. The woman's name was Jean Manford, and she was marching alongside her 21-year-old gay son, Morty. Morty. Morty Manford. And look, there is nothing wrong with the name Morty. Many accomplished, cool people have been named Morty. But the actual Morty in the story, the story Morty, he was an heroic, fully fleshed out character. But I am so ruined by fiction that I couldn't get past the Mortiness of it all. By all accounts, Morty was the superstar of the Manford family. Kids liked him, adults adored him, and his teachers predicted that he would someday be a senator. Right. Senator Morty. Everyone whose hero's journey I follow has a cool name picked out by a screenwriter. They're all Logans and Romans and Shivs, so dubbed for an artistic reason. Or they're Tywins and Tyrions and Arya Starks. Or if they're comedic, they're Ned Schneebleys or Fielding Mellishes. Or how about this? Think about the relatable everyman characters, relatable everyman Tom Hanks plays. In his Oscar-nominated roles, he was Chuck in Castaway, Josh in Big, Andrew in Philadelphia, Captain John Miller in Saving Private Ryan. And yeah, he played a Forrest and a Fred, but that was Gump and Rogers. He had to do that. His characters, when someone gets to pick the name, are always solidly named for American everyman. You don't just randomly name a Tom Hanks character Morty and hope for the heroism to overcome that. The dweeby preteen grandson of an interstellar genius, Rick, he's the guy you name Morty. I'm familiar with the bubble, Morty. Artistic choice. Stories, carefully crafted and constructed stories, are misleading me. They're misleading all of us. I cannot accept the possibility that a hero will rise and his name will be Morty. Just as it never rains in narrative television except to make a point, and just as no one ever has a scar or a limp without that conveying character, so too are names in fiction signals to character. But it doesn't work that way in real life. And this is, once more, my problem. Not the New Yorkers, not the mother, Jean, who comes across as fierce, loving, and brave. But I gotta say, if they ever adapt this story for a teleplay, I don't think you'll get a scene of the lioness mother growling to a would-be predator. I'm not saying that if the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King were popularly known as Marty King, he'd be less impactful. But MLK was a rhetorician. He knew not to call himself Marty King, and he certainly wouldn't be a Morty. I know all over the world there are noble Normans and scintillating Sheldons and loud and lion-hearted Larrys. But in fiction, those names don't take the lead. They take the brunt of the indignities. And it's all because fiction, even challenging fiction, necessarily caters to us on so many levels. I do not blame the form, but I do recognize that it warps me a little and it warps reality. It's just too tempting to affix every Tom, Dick, and Harry with a name that confers information when really a name is just a label. It's not a character trait.
The United States of America has conducted 108 airstrikes in Somalia since 2017. Around 800 Somalians have been killed. And according to the official United States statistic, of these 800 Somalians killed, the number of innocent civilians is zero. Again, zero, one less than even one civilian killed. How could this be? Well, one reason is the United States has a deep and abiding uninterest in actually and accurately counting civilian casualties. I understand why in an abstract way, and yet the details of it, as I looked into it, was quite surprising. And so many of the details seem to center on the person of Larry Lewis, who is the director of the Center for Autonomy and Artificial Intelligence at the Center for Naval Analysis. He was basically the State Department's count the civilians guy until they fired him. I can think of no better expert to shed light on this subject than Larry Lewis. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. Larry, do you like baseball? I confess I don't follow baseball. So in baseball, I do. They have a statistic for everything, but they're really impressive. Like there's this thing called pitch framing, how the catcher behind the plate receives the ball, angles the ball to convince the umpire that it was a strike when maybe it shouldn't be. I mean, it just blows your mind the amount of care, attention, genius that goes into calculating such a statistic. Yet when it comes to counting how many people were killed by a bomb, which seems a little bit easier, somehow we're behind the curve. How can this be? So what you see a lot right now is is Somalia and then Raqqa and Mosul. And the U.S. doesn't have boots on the ground in any of those places. So they're doing airstrikes and other kinds of remote uh, uses of force. So there's no one to go to the site afterwards and do an assessment. So oftentimes, you'll ha- if you have an aircraft doing an airstrike, they will have pictures or video. And then there are other things you can use, human intelligence, signals intelligence. But it's also important to say these are limited. So they get you something but they're not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Is one of the reasons why it's hard to get an accurate estimate that people high up in the Pentagon don't want to get an accurate estimate? I would say that it's less about willful misunderstanding and more about ignorance. What the military had assumed for civilian casualties was you'd have a case where the military finds a military target, valid military target, they engage it so they do an airstrike or something, And then there are civilians that were unobserved in the area, and that's how civilian casualties happen. That's how a lot of people think civilian casualties occur. But if you look at the data, the data shows something different. About half the time, it's not that at all. Instead, the military sees what it thinks is a valid military target, engages it in the belief that it's a valid military target, but it turns out later those were civilians that were misidentified. Mm-hmm. And the way you fix that problem is very different than the collateral damage problem. Is, is, are we investing in the technology that does that just as we invest in the technology that counts as effective weaponry? Great point. You know, we often hear not just the U.S. government, lots of governments say this. We do everything possible to avoid civilian casualties. And the data says there's more we can do to prevent civilian casualties. And one of them is looking at innovative uses of technology. And that can be a wide variety of things. I'm working on artificial intelligence, and a lot of people are scared about 
the use of, of artificial intelligence in military operations. But I can tell you, as as the civilian casualty guy, there are there are specific ways that artificial intelligence could be used to better protect civilians on the battlefield. Now, let's zoom out a little bit and let's say you had to, I don't know, maybe you've been in this position. You had to convince the most hard-ass general in the Pentagon why your numbers are helpful to him. So it's not someone who donates to Amnesty International. It's not someone who naturally says, oh, we don't want to cause harm in the world. It's perhaps the kind of person, real or imagined, who says, I have one mission. It's to kill the bad guys. That's all I care about. Make the case to that guy that knowing civilian casualties still can help his job ultimately. All right. I have done that before. <laughs> so a couple a couple different arguments. So so talking to the people who are skeptics, they generally have one of two arguments. Mm-hmm. One is that better protecting civilians means that military operations will be less effective. To that, I go to Gershwin. He said, it ain't necessarily so. <laughs> and fortunately, I have lots of data. So, you know, at CNA, we love data. Um, and I've managed to get a lot of it from real-world operations. So I can test these questions. Remember I talked about two basic mechanisms for civilian casualties. Yeah. There's the collateral damage mechanism and then the misidentification mechanism. So if, if half of your cases are misidentification, then what's happening is you're killing civilians and you're not neutralizing your military target. So if you can reduce civilian casualties, you actually improve your targeting accuracy. That's sort of an abstract argument, but I actually have operational data showing rates of civilian casualties and rates of military targeting success that they reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one argument that you're going to be better off in getting the targets that you want, General, if you pay more attention to civilian casualties. Hmm. The the other argument that I've seen, you know, it's less of a, an issue in air campaigns, but it was really a big issue in Afghanistan, is that better protecting civilians puts troops in danger. Again, the facts don't support this argument. Again, I have data showing that uh, risk to troops actually went down at the same time that this different kinds of tactics were used. So the, those two basic arguments tend to fuel most of the resistance to trying harder for civilian casualties. And if you use data to to look at those things, neither of them really hold. You hear that it is true that the the, the ISIS caliphate in terms of the ground they control has uh, been beaten back. ISIS is an idea and an operational force maybe hasn't. But you do hear it proffered that the United States took the gloves off Uh, I think this means letting the generals have more say with strikes or commanders on the ground have more say with strikes as opposed to going back to the Pentagon. But it has at least been intimated that also a greater disregard for civilian casualties correlates to, uh, quote unquote, winning the fight against ISIS. Do you have anything to say about that? So my concern about that is that you might have quicker success in the near term. But we ought to also have to think about the long game. So why did ISIS form in the first place? It's because we were in Iraq before and there was al-Qaeda in Iraq. There was another you know, insurgency terrorist group. And basically it wasn't necessarily the U.S. It was the Iraqis that took the gloves off. And they, 
you know, mistreated the population out in the West, the Sunnis, and that led to grievances, unresolved grievances that just festered. And it became a petri dish that allowed the growth of ISIS. So we may think, well, it's, it's expedient to, as you say, take the gloves off. But you know, if you look at history, you know, Iraq is just one example. I could, I could bring up a bunch of others. But if, if, you, if you take a heavy-handed approach, you actually can hurt yourself in the long term. Larry Lewis is an expert in lethal autonomy, reducing civilian casualties, identifying lessons from current operations, counterterrorism. He was the State Department's senior advisor on civilian harm and is currently the director of the Center for Autonomy and Artificial Intelligence at the CNA. You can't take that away from him, to quote another Gershwin lyric. Thank you so much, Larry. Great to be here. And that's it for the Saturday show. And to all our Larrys and Sheldons and Marvins and Seymours, I say, God bless. You're doing the Lord's work. We don't like to call the Lord Yehoshaphat. He seems to get upset with that, but we know who the Lord is. When we say the Lord, we know who we're talking about. Yeah, it goes by Jehovah. That's the cool version of the name, but it's sometimes Jehoshaphat. Larry was the producer of this show. Our senior producer was Larry Patterson. Our regular producer was Larry Wara, and Larry Pasca is in charge of philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. I'll Larry you later. Talk to you Monday. You're wearing a MAGA hat at a sushi restaurant? Is it true? Well, I did have the hat on, yeah. What, are you pro-Trump? No, no. Look, I got this idea to wear that hat so I wouldn't have to have lunch with Phil Rosenthal, mm. and it worked like a charm. He saw me in the hat and he left the restaurant. It was amazing. And I'm not surprised. You know what? It's really coming in handy. Yeah, because no one's going to want to be anywhere near you. Exactly. It's, it's a great people repellent.